everyone. Welcome to Coach on the Couch. I'm Rachel and I'm on my own at the moment. Today's discussion is the audio from an event that Louise and I held on the 23rd of November. We had quite an audience online, so please excuse a couple of sound issues just at the start as people were going on to meet. Our theme for the event was social capital and we brought in a number of speakers, but that's probably enough said about that. Let's just jump into the conversation. Morning everyone, I'm Rachel Birchmore and I'm Louise Rogers and for anyone who's in the room who doesn't know us, we're both coaches and we coach mainly in the built environment. We come together to design and deliver leadership development programs through Step Up as well as obviously co-hosting Coaches on the Couch. So this morning, thanks very much for joining the discussion on social capital. Um, we've got a really busy couch today and we'll introduce those people in a minute, but we've got representatives from a range of organisations and practices to discuss what we think is a really live issue. So um, first of all, we thought it would be helpful just to talk a little bit about what social capital is. And in an organisational sense, it refers to the trust, connectivity and goodwill between the people that work for an organization. Almost like a spider's web made up of thousands of silken threads. And it's closely linked to, but somehow more than culture. It's a strong component of culture. And it can certainly make a big difference to an organization's competitiveness. It's attraction both to talent and to clients. It's not exactly tangible, but we feel that it can be seen and felt and experienced. Um, I find it can help to think of it as a resource. And for the context today, that's how we're thinking of it. And like all resources, it needs replenishing. It's like a sort of social capital bank, if you like. And I think, you know, in the main, organisations fared fairly well through the pandemic. They seem to find ways of maintaining that company culture and cohesion. And I think that's because... You know, the social capital within organisations was fairly high. The uh, the understanding and relationships, which everybody had built up over time because we'd all been working together in person. And the reason we've decided to do the event today is because, you know, Louise and I coach with and within many organisations. And we've been wondering whether the social capital bank within some of them is running perhaps a little low or maybe, you know, it's stronger than ever. So either way, maybe we're approaching it differently and we'll find out, hopefully. So to discuss this, we're joined today by some special guests. So hello and thanks for joining us, everyone. Uh, We've got Stephen O'Malley, who's the Chief Executive of Civic Engineers, Angela Dapper, who's Principal at Grimshaw Architects, Amandeep Singh Kyra, who's Associate Director at Be First, Martin Evans, the Creative Director of UNI, and Tina Connell, Operations Director, Buckley Gray Yeoman. Stephen, we're going to come to you first. You know, civic engineers obviously operate across the UK, and I know you've grown quite a lot over the last few years. But you've got a really strong culture and set of values. I just wonder how you're building in that social capital as you grow. Uh, good morning, Rachel and Louise, and thanks very much for inviting me along today. Uh, yeah, we have grown over the last couple of years. I'd like to think that it's the practice is very much founded on its, uh, its values. As engineers, we feel as though we've got a significant role to play in society. and We put those values and that responsibility right at the forefront in the definition of our purpose. And then we've built our culture founded on those principles. So with regards to the growth over the last few years, there was an understandable degree of anxiety about whether we were that culture and, and those principles would be diluted yeah. as our numbers swelled. 
And in our exploration of that theme and, and attempting to try and address head on that potential risk, we, we came across, or I certainly came across um, the World Happiness Index. I don't know if, if, if many people are familiar with that, but it's been running for about 10 years. Uh, there's about 186 countries across the world that contribute to this survey. And it's a fairly probing uh, and evolving series of key questions. And it deals with things like uh, governance and transparency and fairness, legal systems, a, ho- a whole democracy, a whole series of different, uh, really, really important metrics. Irritatingly and unsurprisingly, the Scandinavians appear consistently <laughs> in the top 10 um, by, these, by these measures. And we kind of felt, I certainly kind of feel as though if there's a society or a culture that can consistently attain these standards over extended periods of time, well, surely there's certainly hope and a belief that a company can do something similar. So picking up on those metrics and observing those um, those qualities, we've brought some of them into our own appraisal of our own systems and just making sure that with, with the North Star of our values guiding all of our decisions, processes and, and systems that we then put in place to deliver that, pick up on, on, on that accessibility and making sure that there's a degree of benevolence, I guess, in there to make sure that people feel properly respected and that they've got a, an opportunity to flourish and thrive under the conditions that we create. And therefore, why, why would they want to leave? We want to, uh, we want to, we want to make our company and their experience in our company and their contribution to our company so fulfilling that actually they are they're completely engaged in our in our shared mission and our shared endeavor so clearly we, we, we have a long way to go to get to that point but we're striving for it and i think people recognize that and we are also i, I hope uh, I, and my, my colleagues would uh, testify to the idea that we're also transparent in the things that we get wrong and acknowledge that where we've made mistakes we invite and ask for challenge and we've made the point that nothing is off the table once people conduct themselves with a degree of civility and maturity and constructiveness in the observations that they make so it's it's not a case of no it's always a case of and how do we make this better clearly very much a work in progress uh, but they were the sort of rails or parameters within which we're attempted to try and develop and, and, and feed propagate our culture well thanks Stephen. i think it's really interesting to think of that happiness index as you say if it can be applied to countries then applying that to companies seems like a really interesting idea and I like the idea of civility at civic as well that fits <laughs> and yeah the problem of growth and and growing within the UK now we're going to come and have a more global perspective from Angela um, you've shared your experience and perspective as part of a global practice with us before so welcome back and I was wondering whether these social capital cracks have been appearing at Grimshaw and how you've been addressing them. Good morning, everyone. First, I just want to say, I think it's quite interesting the group of people you've you've pulled into this chat, because I think they're all kind of strong aspirational and kind of cultural practices, which is which is really good start to have anyway, which means I think nearly all of us had a good kind of founding before COVID. So so part of this is is navigating where we are now, which kind of almost gives us a almost a better vocabulary, I think, to talk about it because we understood a lot of what we were trying to achieve pre-COVID, so we could see what we were missing, actually. And so I think that's where we really see the impact of social capital and cultural capital, because we were looking beyond just where where you're working, but like how you're working and what that really means. So just going back to um, have a look at the um, global perspective, I think just just looking at that, I think we can we can look at globally. I think we looked at the culture of part of the culture of the office being partly wrongly about identity and brand 
And part of that, having a strong emphasis on the physical infrastructure and the physical identity of our practice. And once we got into COVID, we really understood that, you know, physical identity really was nothing. We were all about our people. And we were about a collection of people wherever we were in the world. Actually, it wasn't about real estate or physical identity. Um, And I think that really brought us, brought it to the fore. Also, like when we talked months and months ago, so when we were, you know, in COVID or just out, I think we were still relying on previous practices. So we really lent on how our existing relationships, what we were doing previously and how we worked as an existing group of people. Yet over time, we've changed a lot. So we are now, Grimshaw is now 320 people. We've grown by 70 in the last year, which is considerable amount of our practice. And so what that's really made us address is the way that we communicate with people, how we communicate, how we set aside time for formal and informal communication. And so social building social capital and cultural capital needs to happen both online and off yeah, offline. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it has to happen in person, but we still, you know, can't ignore the fact that we do spend a lot of time on screen. So we need to make routes for these formal and informal conversations to happen. Part of what we've been doing is looking at, at how we work physically. So really focusing on, so when we do come into the office, we want it to really be about face-to-face contact, about discussion, about socialization, about really, you know, seeing each other, really seeing how how we work, how we discuss, but creating those kind of informal opportunities for discussion. Um, so we've spent a lot of time actually uh, redoing our office, which is a continual work in progress and it's still going on. Uh, and we've really changed the way that we present present our office. One, because we want to make it a high quality office. We want people to come in. You know, we want to draw people in. We want it to be a nice place to be as well. Like, you know, I think we've gone past, you know, just walking into an office with rows of desks. Like it's, it's so disheartening. We actually want it to have some buzz and, and some experience. But also we want to create these opportunities so that when you are in the office, you are maximizing the amount of discussion and interaction that you're having with people so that when you are, you know, back at home working uh, in a in a hybrid fashion, then, uh, you know, you are maximizing perhaps your work. So you're creating different streams in different uh, in uh, different settings. And that's been really important to us. So we've been working really hard to create that over time and create different ways of working, but also creating a space for calmness. And this is and this is the other part that I want to talk about is that I think over time, what we've done is we've we've created a culture, but we've realized that, you know, processes and procedures are half. The other half is a culture that is, is almost hard to put in words. But part of that And we know culture is working when we have an openness for discussion, when people are able to speak openly and say exactly what they think and feel without feeling that they, you know, they're going to be shut down or discriminate or any of those things. It's kind of an open platform. So creating that physically and emotionally is something we've been really working on. And I think that's when, you know, and we've been looking at the happiness index and all those things as well, just to make sure that, you know, we are able to say, okay, this is a place that we want to be and we can talk about any anything to be our best selves. And just one, one more point that I just want to make about global is that um, what we're starting to see across the world, I, you mentioned cracks and I, I, I'm not sure it's a crack. And I'm not sure we should be surprised, but we're really because we're really getting um, to grips with how we describe ourselves culturally. And it shouldn't be a surprise that we're starting to describe ourselves in different ways. And we we talk about diversity and inclusion and all those things. But what we 
I don't think we expected as our we expected our uh, our aspirations and culture to be spread across the world and have a kind of one singular aspiration. But actually, the way we describe it in different locations and the way that we work in different locations is different. And and so this is an interesting uh, part that we're starting to grapple with. We're like, actually, we need to work differently in different places. Some people want to be hybrid. Some people want to be in the office all the time. You know, and so actually we're looking at different different solutions for individuals, for locations. And I think that's when it all starts working, that we work under one aspiration, but, you know, it's it's localised and individualised. That's really interesting. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole because I really want to know more about that sort of microculture type feel. Amandi, we're going to come to you next. And it's, you know, Angela's talked a lot there about building on existing and be first. We're almost at the, well, we're at the opposite end of the spectrum to that building. And when we had our sort of pre-chat the other day, you were talking about building a new team. And I just wonder how, how building that from scratch, what difference that's made to social capital and how it was built. Yeah, completely. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, Louise. Yeah, contrary to the global, both the global perspective and the discussions about forming the formation of cracks, I think we've created and built an in-house design team completely virtually over lockdown over the last two years. And I think I want to like just talk about that's actually made a really big difference to who we are now because of the context in which we operated and the way we set ourselves up. So if you're building a team, you must really start with who and how you recruit. And I think Matthew Saeed is a journalist and just all around great guy on the internet. And he talks really about the importance of engineering cognitive diversity in teams. Uh, That's not to be confused with demographic diversity, though they do have a link in. But this type of team is fundamental if you're coming up with creative ideas, strategies and innovation more broadly, and particularly to solve complex problems. Now, that just seems super obvious, right? But I've seen so many teams time and time again formed of like carbon copies of each other. So you need people filled in your team that are filled with curiosity and perspectives that are different to your own. And I say that quite easily, but actually that's really hard to do because by default, we're all wired and drawn to people that are similar to us and are alike to us subconsciously. So when asking questions at interviews, we got more out of things like, you know, talk to us about your favorite public place or your social housing scheme, and it can be anywhere in the world, and things like what what drew you to us. So that that gave us lots more than things like, you know, show us your portfolio, talk about your experience, etc., the more sort of conventional approach to interviewing practices. And when you can't do that kind of pre-meeting chit-chat, see body language, and uh, these questions then really help you get a feel for people's unique perspective um, and their approaches, and other things that really excite them outside of work, and when I've been called, when I've called people to give them feedback, um, those painful calls you have to make when people are unsuccessful, I've also often, I've, I've been asking feedback for ourselves about the process because it's been so different. And there's one particular candidate I remember who said, I've never been asked to just talk about things I like, the places I like and things I've been passionate about just so freely. And she felt, she said she felt so relaxed and she was like, that's why I'm even more upset for not being offered the job because you look like such a good fit for us. And I thought that was super powerful. So it gave me a bit of motivation to fill the kind of processes we set up were pretty good. So, and I, and I hear from other colleagues in other organizations that have discouraged their employees doing things outside of work, things like teaching or other things that, you know, sometimes seen as distractions from work, but our team could not be further from that. I mean, we've got members in our team that have co-founded black females in architecture that are heavily involved in the architecture foundation, 
to the urban design group. And I think between us, we're on a dozen design review panels. We teach with trustees and charities. And the list is really endless. But for me, I think we, we encourage it rather than the opposite. And I think all of those other passions and interests bring that diversity of thought and unique perspective back to us. And it really benefits the way we work. So we've, on top of that, we've baked in like lots of interesting things slowly, um, which we thought would help build a resilient team. So from the options of working a four day week to monthly team visits that different team members organize to this uh, thing we call the fortnightly pod club. Uh, of which Coaches on the Couch does feature. But it's basically a weekly pod club where different people take it in turn to share a podcast that they really like. We all listen to it. And then over our lunch breaks weekly, we just discuss it. I mean, we've talked about things like the impact of color to houseplants and their link to colonialism to like golf courses, systems thinking, and just just loads more. But really, like that that's continually helping us constantly learn from each other's interests, perspectives. I mean, it started over lockdown, but really it's one of those things that's definitely continued beyond and we had one two weeks ago um, and we're just constantly discovering things that we like that we didn't think we would like or even explore remotely because it's just not on our spectrum and that really then comes back to the way it influences your work and the decisions you make. So fast forward a year and rather than growing to a team of four which was my mission when we joined we grew to nine and at this point we wanted to channel this cognitive diversity um, into creating sort of shared team values purpose and kind of cultivating a culture which Angela was talking about it's sort of cultivating that so we worked with an external organization that facilitated through loads of workshops and out of which I think our foundations were strengthened and I would argue even formed at that point because we are establishing a new team. This was back in the flesh, by the way, not just in person, because I think doing stuff like that virtually is really difficult. But these shared missions and team values have then guided our team's future growth. They've really influenced the types of projects we've wanted to get involved in and also shaped the type of work we do, but also have helped us like going outside of our team. It's really influenced who we then collaborate with and how we build our external project teams. That same thinking we champion in how we build our design teams and our consultant teams who should also have that diversity of thought, who bring their own amazing and unique perspectives, challenge us but do share our vision, our values and our purpose and then work closely with residents who bring their own lived experiences from which truly amazing places and spaces and homes arrive. So I think it's just for me to say that is not coincidental. It's, it's intentional. It's engineered and it takes a lot of hard work um, and we haven't always got it right, but we are much better placed to build on this. Yeah, so that that's a little nugget for me. Thanks, uh, Louise and um, Rachel. Loads of nuggets there. Thank you very much, Amandeep. And in fact, it made me think again of that spider's web thing, all those little threads that build up social capital. And it sounds as though you've been very inventive and creative about how you've done that at first. I just want to say before I introduce Tina, the chat room is open. So if anybody's got any questions for Amandeep or anybody else on the panel, please put your questions in there because we should have a good amount of time for those when we've listened to our last two speakers, the first of whom is... Um, is Tina from Buckley Gray Yeoman and, uh, and BGY has made some significant changes to its structure recently as it matures into its EOT status. We were curious, Tina, about what difference that has made to BGY's social capital, the EOT journey. Thank you, Louise, and um, thank you for inviting me here this morning. Buckley Gray Yeoman became an EOT in the summer of 2019. And as we touched on slightly, uh, touched on earlier, the pandemic, there was a lot of 
it was easy. I felt it was easy during the pandemic to maintain that because everybody was working from home. We had to work harder, definitely, but everybody was in one place. But I think that the big point that I'd like to make is that the collective ownership um, has positively taken over how we approach so much about the running of the practice. Um, Staff uh, have a greater stake in the business, so there's a greater level of interest and curiosity about the way the business is running or how it's run and the work that we're producing. And it's looking at our future direction. So that means we do need to provide um, a platform for that engagement. And as, as Angela said earlier, we probably, we are companies which hold culture dear and had a lot of foundations already in place, but the changing landscape, not just um, from a pandemic perspective, but obviously from my perspective, moving um, from a limited company to uh, an EOT, that meant that there were new things that we wanted to introduce to enable greater communication and engagement. And some of the things that we've been doing around that is uh, creating employee forums. That's very much a big part of our organisation. And to start with, we created three employee forums, which were looking at a a number of subjects. But over the last few years, or certainly this last year, we've had a revamp of the employee forums. And this is very much led um, by, by the employees. And we look at topics such as sustainability, heritage, community engagement, knowledge sharing, CSR, and people from all levels of the organisation take part. And it's very much on an equal footing and it's very much um, driven by by the individuals for them putting ideas and making collective decision about um, the way we want to be running the business. And so I think giving people a voice is is really important and and the value that that brings to the organisation is is, is great. And you can see uh, that that will, and it does, pay back, which is great. It's very much part of our onboarding process as well. And um, that was discussed earlier about sort of talent attraction and how from before people even join the company, we want them to be of having same shared values and so we actively promote the fact that we have the employee forums and that we are an employee ownership trust. The new sort of challenges over the last five years, we're no longer just in in London. Um, We now have presence, actually it's five years, the Bristol office just about to celebrate five years next year. And that started as a a very small office and it's now grown to, um, to 20 employees. And so for many of the staff that are there, the EOT is all they've known. It is a challenge, I think, to maintain social capital when you've got different offices, but it's we're up for that challenge. And I think what we do to help support and, and maintain that connection are things that we want to keep building on. It's the nature of how we make our decisions through the forums that definitely helps. But I think it's about the connectivity and it's about making sure that we replicate things that we do here in the bigger office, sort of some people might refer to it as sort of the headquarters, but it's um, making sure that there is that connection. We try to make sure that new starters in the Bristol office and now in our European studio in Madrid, making sure that there's that connection, there's regular 
visits back to the office and it's important that we here in London um, are going down to Bristol. I've been down there, you know, several times a month recently and, and obviously hybrid working and technology really aids everything that we do. But our project teams aren't always defined by office location either. And so we'll often have teams in different cities working together on the same project. So that helps to unify and to create cohesion. And we mustn't forget about the social activities. It's really, really important that it's not just about the work and bringing everybody together in one place. So last year, for example, our annual, might be last year now, um, we did our annual away day down to Bristol. So all of the London office went down there. And earlier this year, we all went to Brussels and we've previously been to Cambridge and other locations, sort of summer parties, but we've also got um, an upcoming Christmas party. And that, again, is, is really important to us to want to make sure that we've got connection across uh, the organisation. But it is a challenge, and I think it's always going to be a work in pro uh, progress. But as part of the EOT, it doesn't feel like you're alone. It feels as though you've got everybody working with you to achieve the overall aspirations and ambitions of the company. That's great. Thanks, Tina. So it's, it's that better, deeper understanding of the culture and values of BGY so that you're able to sort of transport those as you're opening new locations and, and that sort of thing. I think that's really that's really interesting. Okay, so we're going to come to Martin, final speaker. Martin, uh, you and I, you've obviously recently become part of, of Landsec and as creative director, part of your role is to bring those two companies together and unite them behind a current common purpose. What are the challenges to doing that? How do you build that shared bank of social capital in, the, in those circumstances? It's a good question, Rachel, and it's about all I'm doing at, at the moment. Of course, I'm doing it as everybody else on this call is and everybody else in our industry at an incredibly interesting time. You know, we still haven't got to grips yet with all of the problems and opportunities that the pandemic has put in front of us. Problems because we still haven't wrangled how we all work together in this new world where it has changed people's priorities and changed the opportunities for people to live more thoughtful, better, more productive lives. Um, that means people can spend more time with their families, don't have to spend so much time on expensive and grim transport getting to work every day. But it's also prevents, pr provided opportunities to understand how that different kind of work, those different kind of work patterns and the and the greater happiness that that might bring to our colleagues can be an incredibly important, valuable thing that we need to grasp and use to our collective benefit. So uh, I see problems and I see enormous opportunities presented by those pro problems. Uh, of course, not only do we need to change to, to take those opportunities, we need to shape our businesses through that change to also cope with threats. So the world, you know, what's come immediately after a pandemic is this enormous threat to our world and our business of the uh, a very, very uncertain economy. And particularly in our combined industries, you know, us on the one side of the table with the money and the investment and you on the other side of the table as consultants and professional advisors and service de deliverers, that relationship has changed dramatically um, in the last few weeks, I'm going to say, e even. So... All of these things are in a great big melting pot of difficulty and opportunity that we need to try and make sense of. 
the particular extra opportunity that I've had is, as you say, I've got a team of people who I've been working with for some time. I've got a smaller team within Landsec's larger business that we're bringing together to create a new regeneration company. Two groups of people who come from very, very different backgrounds and corporate cultures together to try to make a third new regeneration company in this incredibly uncertain and difficult time that also presents opportunities. And I was just rereading Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens the other week. And in that part of that, he talks about how companies don't really exist. You know, companies aren't anything. They're just groups of people who come together around a shared purpose to, to, bring, to combine their skills to do a thing. And that's all that this is about, a group of people coming together with their combined skill sets to do a thing. So even if you don't accept the need to build social capital or you don't think that it's anything to do with you or your company's just fine and managing things, you are doing it because you're making, you're, you're making a choice through, by default to, to behave in a certain way because there's no default, there's no set behavior. A group of people come together, make behavior. So you can either choose to ignore the opportunity that thinking about social capital and purpose brings, or you can not. And I know which I'd rather do. And so from that blank canvas, what I think we all need to do is take the opportunity of having to rethink our businesses, because there's not a single person on this call who's not having to rethink their business in some way at the moment, either either to uh, seek to challenge threat or because they see a great opportunity to do better. And if you've got an opportunity to rethink, then you've got an opportunity to rethink better. And so what we're doing here at the moment is working out how do we define our purpose? So what are we all coming to work together every day to do? Some people think we're just coming to work together to make some money. I ask how? You can make money by making cars or by running a pet food shop. You know, we're coming together to make money to be a by, by being a property developer. And the only way that I think we're going to do that well is to understand what's the purpose of that. So what are we trying to do? And in this new world, we're trying to make fantastic places where people can have happy, fulfilling lives. And we just happen to do that by making property and the space that goes between them. And then all of the people that we're working with, all of our professional suppliers, all of our architects and our engineers and our cost consultants and our contractors, they're all helping us to do that thing. And so not only do we have the opportunity and the duty to define and enrich the purpose of us as a group of people, but we also need to infect and spread that purpose and that opportunity to all of the thousands of people, because I work for a very large company, um, who help us to do that every day. And if we can infect that whole group of people around us, not only are we then helping ourselves, we're then enabling ourselves to do better by everybody else that helps us because we're a very small team you know we are we are a we're a business with about three billion pounds worth of of uh, development on our books uh, we're 85 people so imagine the thousands of people that are all around us who are helping us to deliver that uh, portfolio of property over the next 10 years that's our immediate horizon so for us the social capital that derives from a clearly defined purpose is absolutely essential to us being able to do our business. We cannot do our business without thinking about it because we simply can't wrangle all of those thousands of people in the right direction at this time of incredible uncertainty and threat where everybody is 
dancing around a little bit lost and don't know how to do. We've got to get on a path. And being able to get on that path happily and contentedly and with some purpose means thinking about how it impacts on every single person in that group of people individually and how to make those people feel fulfilled, happy, that, that their skills are used in the most productive way. Uh, one of the one issue that's in front of me at the moment is that we've moved into a new office, two groups of people coming together. We were we had the, the luxury of being able to uh, design that office from scratch. We took an empty, unfitted floor in uh, Lansex headquarters in Victoria. That's been a fantastic tool to use to gather those people together around a bit of pur purpose. W what do we want our office environment to be like that not only expresses our values and our purpose, but also creates the kind of environment that makes people want to come together at the times when it's necessary and useful in order to do their work together. Because we don't have to all be in the office all day, every day together to do this thing. We just need to come together for very particular parts of the work that we do. Now, I can either send an email out to everybody demanding that they come, not very nice, or I can encourage them to come tacitly by making the office be the perfect place to do that kind of work. And it'd be better and more useful to come to the office to do it than try to do it on a call like this or from home. So I feel like I have enormous power and control at a time when you might imagine you don't to inspire and create the environment for people to self-determine and make their own choices to come better together as a group. I don't mean the power and control to tell people what to do. I mean to inspire them and make them feel that they want to come together in a way that is productive and useful. And I think for me, that's where social capital is best uh, spent, best invested and spent, is in, is in the power that you have as an employer to draw people together effectively and voluntarily and collaboratively and usefully. Thank you, Martin. Um, stimulating as ever. Got a question in the chat room. Rebecca would like to hear from the speakers about how they deal with the endless tension within a busy studio of juggling client work and how that may take over good intentions. As she said, it can be challenging to prioritise things that build and nurture values in that environment. And actually, Angela, I thought I'd ask you that first. Yeah, no problem. And, and I think this is this is an interesting aspect because I think there's a lot of discussion at the moment over architecture being a long hours culture. And I think that's it's inherent in our industry. For some people, they see it as something that is in our industry, whereas I think the other half of the industry is just saying that, you know, and shouting out, it doesn't have to be like this. It really, really doesn't. And I think people are just starting, it's starting to collide, those, those two groups of thought. I think it's really interesting because we talk about diversity and inclusion. And, and I talked before about this individual aspect and how we need to approach the individual and make sure that, you know, everyone has their, you know, best working work life. Uh, balance. But if we're to do that, uh, we really need to look at health and well-being. And that's an absolutely integral part of how we work. Because if we can't be our best selves, if we can't do all our other things, like if, you know, if I can't look after my sick child who's currently upstairs and all these other things, I can't do my job as well. And it's really short-sighted. But also, and I think what's interesting about that discussion, and, and actually it's something that you just said, Martin, about the power structures. Like, So when we look at power structures being this kind of coming from above, you must do this, you must do this. Once you start breaking that down and it becomes much more horizontal, it's an open discussion. You're like, well, actually, I can't work late. You know, I've got this on. I need to do this. 
And then what that starts doing is it creates this open discussion about what should fees look like? What is the time that we're putting in? You know, where is the limit of what we need to do for a submission? You know, why are we going over what, what needs to be done? And it needs to be a discussion that's had with everyone in the room. It's not something that you can just do in a separate room anymore that you're like, the, this is the cost, these are the fees, you must do the work. It's, it's not like that. It's just like, how do we get this done? How do we best do this? How do we get the best result? But also on the other side of that, it's also about making good decisions. There are some projects, you know, that you are going to have to just work super hard and have no profit. And and it may be worthwhile if that aligns with your values and principles. And you're like, yeah, but it's so worth it. We'll do that for that reason. And so that's the discussion. That's why it's so important to talk about it in the round and get everyone on board, because otherwise it's going to cause that that tension. That's not to say that anyone I don't think has worked out that solution, but, you know, but I think they're the kind of steps to, to move towards a better solution. Thanks, Angela. Others to, to add? Other speakers? Anything else? Go on, Stephen. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just really building on Angela's last point there about uh, choosing the right projects. I think particularly at this point in the economic cycle and uh, fees begin to tighten, it's, ma it's making sure that the resources for the project are properly built into the proposal uh, that you pursue. So, in other words, we're not just chasing revenue for the sake of keeping keeping things ticking over. We need to make sure that we we remain focused on quality and preserve the the, the values of the of our respective enterprises and the goals that were set ourselves in, in terms of these overall values. And I, I think that then cascades down through the rest of the system. So people have got the proper amount of time and space to be able to invest in a in a project without having to really sweat and work extremely long hours. Great. Thanks, Stephen. Go on, Martin. It's, it's about empowerment. It's about empowering the people who work with you and for you, if you're at the top of an organisation or in senior management, to, do, to let them do their flipping job. At a time of um, uncertainty, when we're all a little bit flapping around uncertain about what we need to do, that's not the time to suck control up to the top of an organisation. That's the time to let people do their jobs. I used to work for Anita Roddick at the body shop, and she told me once that uh, the right way to delegate and empower is to get to the point where you're a little bit scared of the amount of responsibility that you're pushing down on people who work for you in a hierarchical organisation. And when you get to the point where you're feeling a little bit scared, that's the point at which you just need to do it a little bit more. Is that right, Tina? I'd like to think so. <laughs> I was looking at this question. For me, it's about that the organisation valuing more than just the client deliverables. And we've actually, you know, I spoke a bit earlier, I spoke earlier about the forums, but what we've been doing as well is we've been factoring into the actual workload some time for people to be doing these extra activities and making sure that it's given yeah basically giving time for um, attending forums or doing the CSR activities and sort of so it's recognized that it is valued it shouldn't just be done after work sort of participation and, and I think from the top demonstrating that by giving some time over to colleagues who are looking to deliver um, uh, some of the initiatives that were spoken about is, is really important. And I, I, I was just going to use a slightly different angle and I compare it to, to sort of, if, if I look at myself and others as an individual, I operate really, I'd operate really well when I've got a good balance of doing the things outside of the, my work that influence how I am. So be it 
doing yoga or sports or gym is the way that kind of my rounded overall health and being work. And I think if you put that to a comparison of an organization, that is the harvesting and cultivating your values and culture is like you doing that aspect of your work. It's doing your gym. It's doing your yoga and sports as an organization because you let the rest of the work take over. Actually, you start to create an unhealthy business. And I think we all know what happens when work gets too busy and you, your gym, your yoga, your running, your other things all slip. You start to feel awful. And, and, the, and the business is no different. You, it starts to have that feeling of something is not right. And I think it can go too far and it becomes really problematic before you realize you need to do something radically different, which might mean you have to take time out. And I think that's where I think recognizing that that might be happening and that's the type of culture that's being fostered by team organizers and senior people is really important because when it goes too far, it's almost irreparable to bring bring and rescue that back. I think that's a really interesting point, Anam Dean. It makes me think, you know, picking up on on that and and also what Martin said. I'm curious about whether um, one of the lessons that we all took from the pandemic was, and I'm one, I'm wondering if there's any evidence that people, uh, this might be controversial, are generally a little bit in, invested in work. They don't want their lives to be at work all the time, and how that impacts social capital and I wondered if somebody would like to speak about that I'm happy to jump in actually the and there's a question uh, in the chat from Martin Long about balancing expectations of younger and older employees and and I don't think it's one group or another but I think there has been a point in time that we stepped away from the office and people looked at how they were working and changed the way they're working and some people came back and said actually I want to do my job and I want to go home at you know the end of the day I don't want to be doing all these extra bits. And that's how I work. And I think what's also important about that is, and and, sorry, and the little things as well. I think pre-pandemic, we were doing really weird things like having lunch between one and two. Like, you know, I'm hungry at 12. (laughs) Why don't we eat at 12? Like, it's really weird, the kind of patterns that we were kind of, you know, forced ourselves into. Went into the pandemic and we free flowed and we went, actually, you know, I'm going to eat when I'm hungry. And it's really interesting we create these patterns. We came back into the office and went, actually, we all work differently. I want a standing up desk. I want to do these things. And I think that's what we felt empowered to come back into the office and say, hey, these are my working patterns. But also, and what's and people have been much more vocal. And I think the younger generations who have stepped into an office and gone, oh, this is how it works. I'm going to follow have now just gone, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to work with you if you expect me in the office five days a week. And it's really interesting, the kind of the empowerment, but also we know that there's, you know, recruitment issues that people can have that voice. And I think that voice is getting bigger and bigger and it's, which is great. And I think we need to take that on board because I think that's a real challenge to how we work. It's a real challenge on how we're getting everyone on board from the from the bottom up. And I and I think that's interesting. So when uh, on the bottom of Martin's question, Martin Long's question, it says, "Are employee contracts being abused?" And I think that's an interesting question because there's a lot of people who won't let their contracts be abused, and you're like, "Actually, I want to add this clause," and they're like, "No, you won't." Whereas you know, maybe ten years ago, people would just sign anything because they wanted the job. And I think this is a really good place that we've got to, that people are questioning, what is my job? And it's different things to different people. It definitely is different things to different people, Angela. And I think that it's it's not just about Gen Z, is it? Everybody's come back. And it's I'm excited because it's an ever-changing landscape. It really is. 
and I think it's 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 going to be really exciting to see how things um, develop over the next few years as well, because it's not it's not going to stand still. Nobody wants to go back. It's just moving forward all the while. But it's quite funny you said about lunch, and I have to smile because we still have our lunch at one o'clock. We still do, but we sit around the table. We enjoy it. We're sitting around the table enjoying that together. So, but you know, it's um, it's quite funny. Well, you two know that. Look how much money and time and how many books have been written over the last 30 years to understand that people are different. And that what you do in creating a successful organisation is, is how to build an organisation that recognises that everybody's different. You know, all of those systems that we've all used through our HR teams to try to group us into similar personality types, you know, all those millions of different ways of doing that. But they're all about recognising that everybody's an individual. And all that we've got to try to do is do that better. You know, we, we seem to be recognising and understanding that and then trying to slot everybody into a rigid format, come to work between nine and five, eat your lunch at one and go home and, and go out from work and then do your networking and improve your career and then go home. Instead of imagining that we have an opportunity now because everybody feels liberated to express a little bit better how they how they can work more effectively and ha- be happier. Because what is the point of any of this discussion other than to suggest how we might make people feel happier and therefore more productive and connected to their work and their workplace? What else is the point? And so we've, we can't be talking about problems. We have to be talking about opportunities to see how we can do that. But we've never had a better opportunity ever, ever before, maybe than after the war, you know, or something. Uh, than, than it's with such a shift in social culture, you know, after, after the First World War, the enormous change that that event brought about in social culture, I think that we're going through a, a change in our culture as, as significant as that. Um, and if we don't grab it like we did up then, 100 years ago, if we don't grab it now, we're f- absolute fools. And on that note, <laughs> we're going to bring the conversation to an end. I mean, I've heard, I've written down three things. One is sort of that point of we've got a huge opportunity to rethink better. The other, and there's lots of facets to this, but the key thing is understand social capital and be intentional about it. And the last one is think about everybody's different, be individual, think about the, the needs of, of individuals. That sort of draws us to a close. Just a sort of huge thank you to all of our speakers who have been brilliant. Thank you very much for yes, joining us you. and for sharing your insight. And thank you to everybody else who's on the call. Thanks for, thanks for coming. And the podcast will be out in the next few weeks. Yes, thank you very much. Good to see you all. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.